W233AH Monticello. Live from Radio Catskill Studios in Liberty, New York, this is the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. You may have noticed that a lot of people uh, are sick. That's because there's a lot of things going around, including three respiratory viruses, a trifecta of viruses, RSV, flu, and a new strain of COVID. We talked to Dr. Jody Golidik coming up in the second half of the program. First off, let's start with the latest news from the Times Union's Hudson Valley Bureau. Here's managing editor Philip Pantuso joining us once again on a Thursday evening. Philip, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you. So, um, you know, I was speaking to to uh, Chris Chris Gilardi, uh, who, who does criminal justice reporting for uh, New York Focus. So he's kind of looking at the crime aspects of Governor Hochul's budget. That he's rolling out and, you know, Governor Hochul really hit crime and safety pretty hard in her state of a state address. And then I was surprised that in the midst of that reporting, Chris said to me, uh, but, you know, the governor has indicated she wants to close more New York prisons. And I thought that sounded surprising, given how hard she's hitting crime. But you've got reporting uh, that backs that up. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. This was a story that Raga Justin from our Capitol Bureau reported today. There's a plan that's tucked into the governor's executive budget proposal, which she released, I think, on Monday, um, that calls for the closure of up to five prisons this year as a way to uh, increase their operational efficiency, I think it's the term of art, and save money. Um, And there's a couple of, I think, factors here that are important to note. while, yes, she, she's talked a lot about crime, and while that has been a major issue for kind of all politicians over the past couple of years, um, the enrollment, the state's, the, the, the state prison population has been declining uh, for years now. Um, and it's down to something like 48,000 now, which is, um, I believe, like, you know, it's been a 57% decrease since 1999, according to a uh, a state report that came out a couple of years ago. So that's down at this point by, you know, nearly 60%. Um, the last time that the state did this, back in 2022, they shut down six uh, prisons, including downstate correctional in Dutchess County. Um, and a DOCCS report at that time estimated that closing those facilities resulted in about $142 million of tax savings for New Yorkers. Um, So, yeah, it's basically, I think, a way to try to consolidate the state's prison system. Do any of the proposed, any of these five proposed closings uh, impact uh, this particular upstate region? Because it's it's one of the big employers uh, right here in the this part of the Catskills, the Hudson Valley, there's a lot of folks that work in the local prisons. Yeah. So it's unclear at this point. Um, As far as we've been able to tell the five, like which five prisons might be closed have not yet been fully identified. Raga did report that one of them that that the state is looking at anyway is Great Meadow Correctional Facility, which is a maximum security prison up in Washington County. 
which is one of the largest prisons in the state. Um, so I think that, that might be an indication that they are trying to close some of the larger facilities, but perhaps um, in order to preserve more smaller ones um, or, or to, you know, maybe not close five altogether. Uh, state officials did say that one of the factors that they will consider in determining which prisons to close would be the impact that shutting a prison down would have on the, on the community, um, which, yeah, as you note, a lot of communities, particularly in rural upstate New York, uh, the, the prison is a big uh, jobs provider, right? So I, that's, state officials have said that that's one thing they're going to look at. So it's part of the consideration as they make these uh, decisions. But uh, it's interesting to, to actually look at the real numbers and see, you know, prison populations decreasing. So there might be something to what the governor's saying about closing some prisons. Uh, but on the other yeah, side, and that, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, too, last year um, she she spun the, the 2022 prison closures as an opportunity to address, among other things, the housing crisis. Um, you know, there was last summer a request for proposals for um, economic development uh, that would include a lot of housing, being affordable housing for downstate correctional. Um, I, I don't think that that request for proposals was was closed as of last August, but I don't think they've actually picked uh, a winner yet. So hmm. I'm not sure what's happening there. Um, but, but yeah, this, I wouldn't be surprised now that there's some reporting about this, if it starts to get spawned as kind of like an economic development opportunity, despite the job losses that are, will inevitably follow. Okay, and now do you have an, an update on uh, uh, Socrates businessman Joseph uh, Carolis? Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> uh, he, uh, so Joe Carolis is the guy I've spoken about on this program several times before. He uh, has a, had, I guess, a construction and demolition company called Carolis and Son, and he was wrapped up in a Attorney General's investigation for allegedly accepting uh, illegal construction and demolition debris from sites in New York City and Long Island, transporting it up to his uh, some, his landfills and his dumps in Saugerties, and then using that um, in some of his construction and landfill work in the area. The reason it was illegal is because... Um, Construction and demolition debris has a lot of toxic chemicals in it. It can have metals in it. It can have other possible carcinogens. And uh, it's more heavily regulated, like how you store it, how you use it, et cetera. So you need, like, additional permits um, to make sure that you are, you know, basically not polluting the water. He didn't have any of these, um, and he had been wrapped up in this uh, attorney general's investigation he, uh, I, got, I got a tip about this actually late last month. Um, I got the tip just this, just last week, but he had, he pleaded guilty to violations in that attorney general's investigation. So he uh, he basically admitted that he had 
broken numerous state solid waste and water pollution laws. My count was, I think, 30 separate violations related to uh, three dump sites that he had in Socrates um, over the course of a couple of years. Um, now, there, the case is still technically active because um, the Attorney General's office is seeking remediation. There has been a lot of reporting done by us and other local papers up here about how some of this debris has been used, particularly um, on one property in Woodstock, who uh, the neighbors of that property have sued the town for not being able to enforce the cleanup. A lot of this construction and demolition debris that Corollas brought to this property in an attempt to like level out the yard, which is what which is what the homeowners wanted, has spilled into neighboring yards, is potentially threatening the water supply for the town of Woodstock. And there's been this whole mess that like was a major issue in the town supervisors race last year. Um, seems like nobody has been able to enforce cleanup action here. And so that's what the attorney general's office is still trying to do both with, I think, that site, but particularly his three um, dump sites in Saugerties. They're all along Route 212 um, between the towns of Saugerties and Woodstock. So there's you know, still something to be determined, I think, in this case. Yeah. And then you know, he is also, this is relevant, I guess, just in terms of the amount of legal uncertainty hanging over his head, He's currently behind bars um, facing a manslaughter charge uh, from last year, which uh, is due to go to trial in March. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot going on there. Just just real quick, is there any indication that the fact that he's pleading guilty, does that in any way help the potential cleanup efforts? Um, You know, it's hard to say. I think... Um, there's been no indication of that from the court filings. He's a hard man to reach currently due to the legal jeopardy (laughs) that he's facing. I tried to get in touch with his lawyer, um, and, uh, they didn't give me a call back. Um, so we'll, we'll see. All right. And, uh, more investigations into potential wrongdoing. The FBI is getting involved with an Orange County investigation into whether contracts awarded to an IT company were illegally procured to enrich the company's founder. So, uh, my question is, why is Orange County investigating this? And why is now the FBI getting involved? Yeah. So this was a story that Lana Bellamy, um, who covers Orange County for us, uh, has been reporting on for a couple of months now. Um, there are some Orange County lawmakers who have questions about uh, a contract and then several renewals of this contract that the county entered into for information technology services with a company called Star CIO. And the proprietor of Star CIO is a man named Isaac Sakalik, who is the brother-in-law of the county's HR commissioner. The county's HR commissioner is in charge of um, county staffing, and there had been a vacant IT position for up to 10 months, I think, which is why they needed to seek this, like, outside IT services. Um, 
the question that um, <clears throat> these Orange County lawmakers have is whether these contracts were illegally or improperly procured, because um, there doesn't seem to have been a very competitive bidding process. Um, a couple of uh, a couple of the other proposals that were put forth um, were kind of mocked up and in what's I'll try to keep this brief in what's called like a piggybacking process just to try to show essentially that star CIO's proposal was legitimate and not like, you know, way out of whack with what the industry standards are for providing IT consulting and services to a county. Nevertheless, uh, there's certainly the appearance of potential impropriety here, which, um, County lawmakers and Orange County uh, or State Senator James Scoofus, who represents Orange County, um, have been looking into for a couple of months. The county formed a special investigative committee that's been conducting interviews with all of the relevant parties here and going over all the documents. Uh, Scoofus has also been involved with that. He, he issued his findings about a month ago. Um, and said that he was going to pass those on to the FBI. Uh, the FBI on Friday, I think it was, uh, decided to get involved. So they served a subpoena to the county for documents related to these contracts, um, which uh, the Orange County Attorney Rick Golden told me uh, was received by him, even though it's directly addressed to the county. And he said that they're going to uh, fully comply with that request. So, you know, it's kind of unclear that if it's not like the FBI sent a press release saying that they're now investigating this. So um, it's not totally clear to me what would make this um, rise to the level of something that the Federal Bureau of Investigation needs to look into. One potential clue is that while the while that special investigative committee was conducting its work, there was an, a whistleblower who came forward and, with concerns about other contracts that the county had doled out. That investigative committee doesn't even know the identity of this whistleblower, um, and they've expanded their probe to look at these other um, contracts. That happened, I think, after Scoofus concluded his report, so it wouldn't have been in what was initially sent to the FBI. But it's possible that there's a bit more to this than we currently know. Wow. Okay. So this is something we may be revisiting in the future as more comes to light. For sure. And like, you know, even if it turns out that this is, this is the end of it, even if it turns out that, that these contracts were totally above board and fine, um, you know, we'll we'll be reporting on that either way. Like this, uh, both both the county and the the FBI are continuing to look into this. So there's there's still more news to come. Yeah, and potentially uh, not so good news for Orange County. But let's continue now. We've got about uh, three minutes left um, with potentially good news in uh, Orange County because uh, Shunamunk State Park, which is not far from Storm Kings, kind of between Vales Gate and Woodbury. Um, the Open Space Institute has purchased 169 acres to be added to the park. That sounds like good news. 
Yeah, yeah, really good news. This was um, something that they uh, announced today, the Open Space Institute. Um, they they purchased, yeah, these 169 acres, which are adjacent to two previous OSI purchases, that total something like 1,100 acres overall. And all of that property is being transferred to New York State to be added to uh, Shonamunk State Park. Um, and one kind of cool thing about this is, well, two cool things. Um, the first is that uh, Open Space Institute said that this is going to protect some of the watershed for uh, for that, that feeds wells and other aspects of the Village of Woodbury's public drinking system. Um, and uh, an aquifer, an aquifer there in the Woodbury Creek corridor. And um, this area of the park is, or these new acquisitions anyway, are right up by where a portion of the Highlands Trail, which is, you know, that very popular long hiking trail that goes through New Jersey and New York. Um, There's a portion of that trail that's on a public road currently, and I guess has been kind of dangerous in the past, and this will allow... Uh, the commission that oversees that trail to potentially reroute this dangerous portion through what is now, uh, you know, protected state forest land, which they say would make it a lot safer for cyclists and bike and um, hikers who use the Highlands Trail. All right, great. And in just 30 seconds, can you touch on this story? Because I heard the New York State Thruways closed, man, or at least a small part of it. <laughs> yeah, small part of it. Yeah, this is uh, this is probably news you can use. Um, the Thruway Authority has been taking down this overpass that uh, has been hit a bunch of times by cars in New Paltz. Uh, they closed the northbound lanes between exits 17 and 18 last weekend, and they're going to close the southbound lanes this weekend. So Saturday night, about 8 p.m., if you're driving on the Thruway, uh, make sure you're already south of uh, Newburgh. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to be rerouted and You're going to be driving out of your area. All the stories that we've been talking about tonight are at timesunion.com. We've been talking to managing editor Philip Pantuso. Philip, thanks for being here with us. You got it. Take care. This is Radio Catskill. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Today on The Daily. Over the past few months, attacks by Houthi militants on global trade and the Western military which once seemed like a dangerous sideshow to the war in Gaza, have become a full-blown crisis. I'm Mike Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. At 6.30 on Radio Catskill, right after The Local Edition. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. It's the local edition. I'm Jason Dole. If it seems like everyone you know is sick right now, well, there's a good chance that some of them are because there's a trifecta of viruses that's circulating the country. That's RSV, flu, and a new strain of COVID. Health officials say that all three are leading to an uptick in respiratory illnesses in most states. Dr. Jody Golidic is an infectious disease critical care and internal medicine provider for Garnet Health doctors, as well as Garnet Health's epidemiologist. Tim Bruno spoke with her about the spread of respiratory ailments this winter. 
So we're definitely seeing an increase in the hospital setting and in our urgent cares and in our emergency part departments. A lot of people coming in with, you know, cough, runny nose, shortness of breath. So typical things we see with these upper respiratory tract infections. We're seeing a lot of influenza. We're seeing a lot of COVID and we're seeing a lot of RSV. Um, and it seems like there's been an increase, which is very common after like the holiday season and people are getting together. Is there a particular increase? You mentioned influenza. Is there a particular uh, respiratory illness that's increasing more than the other, or is it just sort of all neck and neck at this point? It's pretty much all neck and neck. We're seeing a lot of influenza, we're seeing a lot of COVID, and we're seeing a lot of RSV. Many of us have friends and, and colleagues who are experiencing what seems like weeks of these respiratory symptoms. You know, myself, I've been, I've had this kind of cold that's been kind of lingering, it seems, for a while. Is this normal? It is. So um, it's not uncommon to have what's considered a a post-viral cough. Usually that's a cough that it's uh, diagnosed after three weeks after whatever um, upper respiratory infection that you have. And it can last anywhere from three weeks up to eight weeks sometimes. So that's not uncommon. It is bothersome to people, I think, because it's it's not fun to have a cough. And this uh, fluctuating weather, the cold, extreme temperatures doesn't help, I suppose. Are, are we in a kind of COVID wave or surge in terms of how this has been at previous winters? Last year, the numbers actually were higher, but we're seeing an increase now in COVID. So I think, and just in influenza and in RSV, those are the ones we test for. There's also other, you know, respiratory viral illnesses that people are getting at the same time. They may test negative for COVID or for flu, but they're still feeling poorly and still have what's considered a cold. Um, But we're definitely seeing an increase, not as bad as last year, but still bad enough that it's causing a strain, I think, on the healthcare system uh, with the number of patients coming in, the number of staff also getting sick. We're in the middle of January. Uh, When do you think we can expect a, a peak in this current surge? I'm hoping that we're seeing a peak in the next few weeks and, you know, but the season can last all the way through March. And as we saw last year, we were still seeing flu all the way into May and June. So hopefully in the next few weeks, we're starting to see numbers start to downtrend. And are severe outcomes a bit rarer than in earlier pandemic winters and earlier surges? I think we're still seeing the, the poor outcomes in, you know, our extremes of ages, especially like in the elderly population, the population with chronic medical problems. Um, there's, I think right now, because we're in the upswing, we don't start to see those severe cases of death and things like that until a few more weeks after we hit our peak. So it's a good time to remind folks about things they should do. Um, so if you're feeling sick, what should you expect if you reach out to your doctor and, and what kinds of questions should you ask? So if you are feeling ill um, and you are going to reach out to your doctor, if you do test positive for COVID or influenza, there are viral treatments for those two particular infections. Influenza, there's Tamiflu or Olfeltamivir. So you can ask your doctor if you would be a candidate to start that treatment. And also with COVID, we have treatments. Most common is Paxlovid. Again, talk with your doctor if you're someone that would benefit from those treatments if you're not feeling well. And you test positive for those particular infections. And if you get sick, what are some steps to take to facilitate a faster recovery? For example, uh, is it advisable to go to work or to school or, or, you know, exercise? Definitely don't go to work or school. Um, Not only uh, is it, 
you know, not good for yourself, but also you're at risk of exposing your coworkers um, to the infection that you may have. But also get rest. Um, try to go easy on yourself. Uh, drink plenty of fluids. Um, you know, you can use over-the-counter medications for fever like Tylenol. Um, and exercise I don't think is necessarily bad, but just take it easy if you're not feeling up to doing your usual exercise routine, but feel like you can tolerate, you know, a walk or something like that where you're not going to be around other people, um, that's okay. And what are some precautions that folks should take? If you're not feeling well, definitely uh, if you can avoid going to work, don't go to work, don't go to school. Um, Some precautions if you are um, someone that is immunocompromised or you have to be around someone that's immunocompromised or older or also, um, you know, extremes of age, you know, our infants are at risk for RSV, consider wearing a mask in public. Um, Just during this time, because the fact that there's so much uh, virus going around, um, the mask will kind of help protect you from potentially getting sick and potentially getting someone else sick. There's also preventatives like vaccines. Correct. So also, if you have not been vaccinated uh, with, there's three vaccines this year. Um, There's flu. So anyone over the age of six months um, should talk to their doctor about getting the flu vaccine. There's the COVID vaccine, which is also over uh, patients six months or older. Uh, Again, talk to your doctor about getting the, the COVID vaccine. There's a booster that's out. And then there's also the RSV vaccine, which is for specific populations. Uh, There's for patients over 60. It's recommended, and then for young children, it's also recommended less than eight, eight months old or if children have chronic conditions. Also, if you're a pregnant woman, uh, it's recommended that you get vaccinated between 32 and 36 weeks, and the idea of this is to, to pass on those antibodies to your newborn baby who's at risk for RSV. Will there ever be a point where there's a, a flu shot and a COVID shot that takes care of both, or is it still going to be like the two shots that you should always take at this time of year or, or during these times of year? Right now, they're the, the two shots, the mechanism is different. And so as of right now, it's still going to be two shots. I, don't, I haven't seen anything in the literature of combining the shots at this point. Um, so I think, you know, for right now, expect two shots. As always, folks uh, can get information about uh, where to get shots and what the trends are. Uh, CDC has that. We actually have those maps and COVID vaccine locators on our website, too, wjffradio.org. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us and uh, giving us the lay of the land when it comes to the respiratory ailments this winter. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Jody Glydick is Garnet Health's epidemiologist and an infectious disease, critical care, and internal medicine provider. And we should note, Garnet Health is a financial supporter of WJFF. Before we go tonight, money. Coins, specifically brand new coins that bear an iconic New Yorker's likeness. The United States Mint is celebrating the bicentennial of Harriet Tubman's birth with three commemorative coins. WRVO's Ava Pukach reports proceeds from the sales could bring millions to the Harriet Tubman home in Auburn, New York. The silver dollar coin shows Tubman's role as the conductor of the Underground Railroad with the back side of the coin showing silhouettes crossing a bridge made of clasping hands as the North Star guides them to freedom. The half-dollar coin depicts Tubman's time serving in the Union Army during the Civil War, where she was the first woman to lead an expedition. And the five-dollar gold coin depicts Tubman's life living as a free woman for 54 years in Auburn, New York. Karen V. Hill is president and CEO of Harriet Tubman Home Incorporated. 
She says seeing Tubman on a coin was a, quote, moment for the ages. It allows us to further share Tubman's history in a way that would have taken us years otherwise, because everybody will have will have uh, the opportunity to purchase a coin and to have it, you know, ownership of that coin and passed down to future generations. Surcharges from the sale of the coin will be paid equally to Harriet Tubman Home Incorporated and National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. If all coins sell, each organization would receive $4.75 million. In Syracuse, I'm Ava Pukach for the New York Public News Network. Thank you, Ava, and the New York Public News Network for that report. That's it for the local edition. I've been your host, Jason Dole. Thank you so much for listening. Do keep listening on air and live streaming online at WJFFradio.org. This is Radio Catskill. I'm Callison Stratton, a singer-songwriter, public historian, and host of Liberation Station here on WJFF Radio Catskill. Liberation Station is a show that highlights the work of female and femme-presenting performers across genre and time. It's my little way of balancing the scales of representation on the radio. Join me for Liberation Station every Saturday evening at 7 p.m. only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Radio Catskill supporters include SUNY Sullivan, a community college in the Sullivan Catskills focused on preparing students for the future. More information at sunysullivan.edu. Livingston Manor, dining, shopping, and the arts at the Gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com. And listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org.